we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Rich, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but can go wherever our conversations might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse, P-U-L-S-E. I'm really very pleased today to introduce today's guest, attorney Aaron Siri, who is a civil rights attorney and the managing partner of Siri and Glimstead, a law firm with over 50 professionals with a large and robust vaccine practice, including handling vaccine injuries, exemptions, and policy work. Mr. Siri has been involved with many national cases involving COVID-related restrictions and mandates, including challenging mandates for air travel, companies with more than 100 employees, and members of the Air Force and the Army, as well as suing the FDA for release of the documents it relied upon to license the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines. And I have to say that, Aaron, you were one of the people I am most in awe of in, in things during the pandemic for the, your degree of accomplishments of things that are not just people like me standing up and saying things, but but you actually accomplishing things on the ground. And, and this is just uh, what I consider to be major in our fight against the tyranny. So, Aaron, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Well, I think the thing on uh, everybody's mind right now is... Uh... Missouri v. Biden, that's uh, been a big top conversation, at least the last few days. Um, and the injunction that was granted in that case, and then the uh, Fifth Circuit stay of that decision, uh, it's truly a sweeping, a sweeping and um, maybe a sweeping decision, and maybe one of the more, uh, most consequential decisions with regards to First Amendment free speech in 200 years. And uh, how long does the, the, uh, the hold on it that the that the appellate panel uh, put on it last. Um, at the moment, it seems like it, it 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 could stay until the Fifth Circuit actually decides the merits of the appeal. Um, so, um, and how long that will be is um, always requires a bit of reading of the tea leaves. Um, it, 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 We'll know more once a panel's actually selected and and uh, start uh, you'll, and and starts um, giving indications of where they're going. So the panel won't be the three judges who put the stay who made the stay. Is that right? It um, in, not necessarily. Um, the rules vary by circuit, and I and not necessarily. I, I actually have to check that um, in the fifth. So okay. I should maybe I'm. I might have spoken out of, out of turn, maybe. Okay, um, because it seems that politicization of this issue has been stronger than the issue itself. And um, it shouldn't be, because this is a fundamental American issue. And, you know, it, all of our uh, rights on both sides of the aisle depend on the the, the fundamental nature of, of this constitutional right. And, and you'd think that one would want to understand that not just the political gain you get by suppressing your your opposition but the political gain that you get over the longer term uh 
in being able to maintain your position as administrations change, because if it's not, the, the whole thing can just flip. Right. Short term, you censor, you're a government actor, you censor, you might get a short term gain from it. But to your point, there's two two things. Uh, one is your point, which is, I think this is your point, which is um, the government wields that power today when you're in power, when you're on the other side and you're in the minority, then it gets wielded against you. And that's problematic from the perspective of government, you know, censoring other government actors. And that's not good, too. But the but the realest danger, the most serious danger is censoring people in public, the ability of the public to stand up to government. And that's what free speech and the right to free speech, you know, at its core, at its core, core, core is really about is the ability for the American public to be able to speak up against government actions and conduct they don't agree with, which is, um, you know, you could see how uh, a country that just came, that was just born and came out of the throes of, um, you know, uh, being under the thumb of the English monarchy and the repressive rules um, and the inability to fight, speak up and fight back without being, you know, tarred, feathered or, or, or worse, um, I would, would make that part of the First Amendment, one of the first rights in the Constitution. Um, it's interesting that I get the sense from a lot of what goes on in public life and government life today that the government actually doesn't care what people say. That it does try to, it does censor and it does try to suppress things, but it pretends that what you know contrarian viewpoints are are being expressed don't exist. It just ignores it and doesn't respond and treats it like it's not there. And and so why even bother with any of this if that doesn't register on them? You know, if you have a hundred thousand people at a protest and and they couldn't care less. And, you know, it doesn't get to much of the media and and it's just ignored. Well, is the protest just whining in public? Does it ha actually have a, a, a beneficial function? What What's the point? Oh, I think speaking in the public square is incredibly important. The contrarian view of today becomes the majority view of tomorrow. I mean, look at the long arc of history. You know, it's a condition of human nature and it's uh, something that I think about a lot in litigation. It's a condition of human nature to, to think that what exists right now is permanent. It's a feature of, of, I think, just human beings. We all look around and, and things just seem so permanent. Um, and I think it requires a, it requires over um, uh, overcoming that natural inclination. It requires um, actually mental work to overcome that uh, uh, desire of permanence that we have for various reasons. And to realize, wow, things change so much faster than we we appreciate in our um, um, and, and just look back over the last five years, two years. Think about, you know, 2019, go back 10 years, go back 20 years from that. I mean, go back 50 years, which is, you know, 100 years, not that long in the arc of human history. And think about how widely Things have changed, you know, as an example of what you're talking about, um, you know, uh, and, and, and to your and, and more directly to your point, this protesting matter, just standing up and shouting. So sometimes you feel like you're, you're shouting into the wind and it's not going to make a difference. 
I mean, think about how, um, think about the cultural general view and perception of our gay marriage in this country in the 1800s or early 1900s, 1920, 30, 40, 50. I mean, you know, somebody told you that, oh, the U.S. Supreme Court one day will rule that it is a constitutional right. Gay marriage is a constitutional right. Mm-hmm. They had a laugh. Their, their sense of permanence would never be able to accept that. They would just laugh at you. Um, what changed? It's people shouting in the public square of that day, wherever it was. So you're saying that the Overton window is changed to be what's acceptable in public discussions by that process. And the, the change of that do. window changes what people actually entertain and think about and approve. And I do. And I think that tipping point is hard to know. When it tips, what's the tipping point? It's hard to know. But it doesn't tip until there's a constant outward discussion, struggle, speech, pushing it out there. And that happens in whatever, like I said, the public square that day. Now, I'll add two points to that. And it's just my, my musings. I mean, this is random musings I have on this. <laughs> One is this. The public square of old was literally the public square. You'd actually, you know, go back to the 1800s. You'd actually have to physically go to the square, stand on a box and yell, and you only reach the people who happen to be there in that moment. Your ability to to influence and, and you know, happen in, in that kind of in manner, you know, there was rare... I mean, there were some technologies, radio actually and so forth, that started coming about, but that was limited to to few, right? The ability today to reach masses quickly, I think the reason people's, um, um, the cultural norm on issues can change so rapidly is because of internet, social media, podcasts like this. I mean, people are, everybody can try to influence other in ways they haven't before. So I, I do think those things are, are really important and bringing it all back, really back to what we started this conversation with the free speech in Biden, Missouri, it's, it's critically important because that town square of old before is this social media space of today. And if the government come in and can censor you on social media and what you could say in particular about government conduct, I mean, that is incredibly dangerous. There's well, Bobby great- Kennedy was talking about that in his testimony this morning. Uh, about giving his um, uh, entry speech when when he uh, uh, decided to run for for president, and he got in five minutes before he was censored after talking about Paul Revere. That's as far as he got. Um, he did get to talk again. Um, you know, Thomas Massey and other things. Yes, yes. But, but, but uh, the incredible irony, right? That in in, in the Judiciary Committee uh, about weaponization of government. And specifically the topic of discussion for today's hearing that, that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was invited to speak at was about government censorship. It started with eight out of the 18 members of that committee seeking to censor him from being able to talk. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> and, and, right, right. I, I think they don't get the point. They don't just don't get it. It's, you know, and um, and unfortunately, I think it's actually worse. I think they do get it. And they don't care. And I think that they're acting on a program that they've accepted by being a party over everything party where they're instructed what to do and they don't deviate or they're out of the party. I I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, there certainly could be some of that. I, you know, I, I like to give each politician, um, 
the benefit of the doubt in terms of how much do they just how much do they are really just not thinking on automa bots in terms of whatever their party says versus they really believe it versus you know it is actually something they wanted to do sometimes you know people have collective interest um but in this instance yeah i mean i mean i watched all i watched the comments as you did sounds like as well and i think that um a lot of them have preconceived notions about what mr kennedy stands for what he has said what he believes um and they are uh, they they have a caricature in their mind and they haven't let themselves have an opportunity to really hear what he has to say i think that frankly says more about them than it does about sure i mean once you do due for diligence sure. when in any profession absolutely and somebody's coming before you, especially being so tone deaf to the to the nature yeah. of the year. I, I tweeted out a quote this morning, actually, about exactly that. I could, you, you know, I could read it if you want. It's actually a quote from uh, that was also quoted in the Missouri decision, and this was, you know, Harry Truman. I thought it was so apt. Harry Truman said, uh, "Quote, you know, once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of oppositions, which is what we heard today, what they tried to do today." It has only one place to go, and that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. And left unchecked, what the federal government was doing, the executive branch was doing, of the federal government, the social media companies, you know, uh, uh, was going down exactly that road until there was a, a stop put to it. I'll add one other layer to what I think was going on today. You know, uh, the current president is the head of the Democratic Party, effectively. Well, well I have my doubts about that, but. Okay, well, <laughs> well uh, uh, on paper, if nothing else. And, um, um, you know, I, I think that he very much uh, is, in, he is in lockstep with most of the Democratic institutions and party positions and, and, um, and, and machine that keeps that organization it's an organization made of individuals that have their own interests like even though they are members of congress or whatever where you know uh, robert f kennedy jr is not in lockstep with that in fact many of the benefactors of the democratic party would probably end up being uh, uh um be in trouble for some of the uh, misconduct they uh, commit and he wants to go after them for whereas the democrats you know turn a blind eye to that ton of stuff sure. so they are, um, there is a lot of individuals and, and a lot of members of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party who um, really do not want to see his presidential campaign succeed. And this was an opportunity to just smear him as much as they can. Well, I understand that because he's, for them, a Democrat in name only because they've moved the Democratic Party so far to the left that centrist Democrats like him, like me, like Barry Weiss, like many other people, um, were were left with no party. Yeah. You know, yeah, I went to I went to Berkeley for law school, and uh, you know, I, I uh, it's amazing to think that even the Berkeley, well, it's twenty years ago, it's over twenty years ago, but still, um, it's amazing to what we talked about earlier how things can change so fast. Even even from that environment, they would they seem you know quote unquote right wing. For what that's worth putting on the issue uh compared to, to what you see what you see today but you know but the thing is about 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 robert f kennedy is that uh 
he is very much in accord with 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 the core democratic principle. I think that had that it did exist for a long time, for decades, which is fighting corruption and protecting civil rights. That was a core feature of the Democratic Party. That's right. And he's but, just trying to go back to that, really. Yeah, but they're not for that anymore. Uh, they have they have a different theology, and that's their their whole woke agenda. And the woke agenda is not for civil rights. The woke agenda is for specialized rights. And well, it's a big difference. Yeah, you need to look, you need to look no further than the official position that the ACLU has now about mandating uh, all kinds of mandates during the lockdown, where they say that, it, that, that the mandates protect civil rights. You can go to the ACLU website. You can it up for yourself. I actually my brain around. I couldn't believe it. I was at an event actually just a few days ago, and the person who was the uh, president, the head of the ACLU for twenty years, spoke at it. Um, and afterwards, I actually went over and talked to her. <laughs> I think her husband was trying to drag her away. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, I, as nicely as I could, I said, look, I, I said, you know, the party of the ACLU that I knew. For decades, fought for civil rights that said that that stood for the idea of I don't agree with what you say, but I will fight to the death to defend your right to say that that principle. I said that ethos. I, I said where is it gone? And I used the examples of mandates. And I said, look, think about this. I said, do you agree with mandating the COVID vaccine? And she said, yes. I said, now, that product you doesn't prevent infection transmission. It's a personal protection. She agreed with that. And I said, so then what? What state you, interest is there? Right. And what is the, you know, she goes, oh, to you know protect people's health. I said, then, well, in that case, I mean, the number one killer in America is heart disease. That clogs up the medical system more than anything. So how come we don't mandate statins? So we should be able to mandate statins. The government should. And mandate exercise and good. I mean, would you agree with that? And she said, you know, her words, I believe, I don't want to misquote her, but she said it proves too much is what she said about her point that it's, you know, personal health. And um, and it does. But you know, here's somebody who spent decades thinking about this and purchased national interest. And said, yeah, we should be able to mandate this. That's a scary to me. That's almost it is a it is scary authoritarian viewpoint that the government should be able to mandate something to you for your own personal health that you get they can make you take a product that is injected into your body because now it's good for you so government always thinks what they do is good for you <laughs> i know well we we got to a, a commercial break point so let's take a pause for a second we'll be right back please stay tuned The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. 
For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Well, the Out Loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health, and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. This is Dr. Hari Rish with attorney Aaron Siri. So we were just talking about the irrationality of mandating things that the government has no actual interest in, in supporting. That um, mandating health benefits for people, then the big ticket item would be mandating people to stop smoking. So the FBI comes to your door at 6 a.m. And, and bangs on your door and puts you in handcuffs to the, to the smoking cessation relocation camp, you know, and I, and that that's kind of what the government would have an interest in if we were actually interested in protecting your health. Um, but as you know, half a million Americans die every year from smoking-related diseases at uh, uh, when they're when they're collecting Social Security. So it cuts ten years off their Social Security collection. And if you multiply five hundred thousand times ten years times twenty thousand dollars per person, the average payout, you get a hundred billion dollars that the government saves every year by dying by killing people by letting them die from 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 tobacco addictions and so you can see that the government's not going to do something in that like that because there are too many interests in there that are getting paid off that they don't want feathers ruffled well i i would like to think they let you smoke because they you know believe in personal autonomy but i i, I wouldn't equate i i would i would distinguish um uh prohibiting you from smoking from requiring you to get a vaccine. You know, there, there government restrictions on access to a product, I view as a, a form of infringement that is of, uh, a, you know, a, a minuscule in comparison to government mandate that you inject, take a product, especially if you, you have to get it under your skin. Sure, I mean, they're, they're complete from a civil right. liberties, individual rights, constitutional rights, um, you know, personal autonomy, formal consent perspective. Obviously, they're just. I understand the. I but you know, they're ve- in my view, they're very, very different. That said, I fully understand your point. Um, you know, um, are, do you think that that's the reason the government uh, doesn't uh, abolish cigarettes? Yes. I think every member of Congress knows this. They know they would have to raise taxes on every person about $300 a year. They think that that would end their chances of re-election. And so it's a no-brainer. They sweep it under the rug. But the interesting thing about that is that, so we as a society also tolerate that, that we don't freak out of half a million people dying every year from tobacco-related diseases. We're inured to those numbers. And if that's the case, why are we worried about 30,000 people dying from flu or 40,000 people dying from COVID or 40,000 people dying from traffic accidents or from gunshot wounds or any of those things? You know, even 
iatrogenic medical mistakes cause 100,000 deaths a year. And where's the vaccine for that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> these are all things that we take in stride as a society, yeah, I, I, except for COVID. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yes, look, I, I, on the cigarette point, at least, I'll say this. There are risks everywhere. There are all kinds of risks you encounter, and you just pointed out a number of additional ones. From a, from a civil liberties, you know, rights perspective of what the government should be doing, how involved it should be in them. That is another feature of what this country was born, you know, in principle to do, which is to let you cast off, take the risks that you want. And you can't go kill people. But the idea is that if you want to take risks for yourself, you should be free to do it. You want to worship some religion that others think you're going to go to hell for? You should be free to do that. I you agree. Want to, you want to associate people that the government thinks you shouldn't? You should be able to do that. You want to you want to engage in speech and say things that the government you know doesn't agree with the things. And and so you know um you know personally I think that you know if uh, I think the government shouldn't be involved in mandating or or involved with cigarettes. Okay. I think if folks want to take those risks, I mean, think about the slope on that. Once you draw, this is the thing about lines in the sand. Once you draw a line, where does it end? Should they be able to buy? Here's a great example. Do you remember Michael Bloomberg decided that people shouldn't drink too much soda? Right. The nanny state and, and, and the big cups. Yep. You banned the big cups. Right. Okay. Now that got struck down, luckily. But if you ban big cups, then what's next? You could see where this goes. Right. And so the greater danger, in my view, as many people die from cigarettes and as horrible as that is, the greater danger is the government deciding it's going to start going down a path of telling you what you should do with your life, because that always results in far more harm at the end. You saw it during COVID. OK, so I have two things that I'm thinking about with that. I agree with you. But for smoking, well, so first of all, what's the FDA for? The FDA is is there originally to to make products that are put out into the marketplace to be nominally safe and effective as advertised. They were basically to review the advertising of products and limit the ones that the advertising was false, right? Now, that in a sense is infringing on the ability of you to go buy your drug that the FDA doesn't think is, is safe and effective, like hydroxychloroquine. Okay, so we already enfranchise that entire behavior in a major way, in a major segment of daily life. And and so that needs to go by the wayside if you're going to be theoretical about this whole process. Well, well I'll, I'll tell you my answer to that, by the way, just by the way on that. Okay. I, I, I actually don't think that the structure is, is right the way it should be. I think that if the government wants to maybe add in, I don't think the government should be in the business of deciding which medical products can or cannot be on the market. I don't. I think the government can feel can, you could maybe have the FDA involved in saying, look, the government has reviewed this and, and, and the FDA believes that it's safe and effective from the FDA's perspective. But I actually don't think the FDA should be involved in, 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 in restricting the marketplace. Um, so, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. If there is a drug that's being released, companies should be able to release it. Now, if they don't want to get FDA licensure, fine. They don't have to get FDA licensure. 
if they do great, they can get that as well and add that. And you in the marketplace can look at and say, okay, hey, here's this product. People read labels. Oh, this says, you know, X, some people only want to buy organic. It says organic. I'm only buying organic. Oh, I'm only buying FDA uh, approved products. Because, you know, again, look at look what happened. You just brought up hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or some of these other repurposed drugs that folks wanted to use. And what happened? You couldn't. And that that's going to happen more and more over time where, you know, pharmaceutical companies are very powerful. They have lots of money. They have lots of interest. Consumers are not organized, don't have those types of powers. All agencies over time, as good and well-meaning as they are intended to be at the beginning, always end up captive by the industries and powers that they're supposed to be regulated because those those industries and the outside powers are the ones of the money and resources and long game to start influencing them over time. Yes. So the second point that I would make about the going back to the cigarette sales is informed consent that when you sell an addictive product, the ability to a number one, know that it's addictive, B make an actual rational choice that something is addict that's addictive is dangerous and something that's dangerous is less good for you, even though you think there are some psychological or social benefits from its use that especially in the age range of young uh, teenagers and young adults who are inadequately developed in in their you know future thinking forebrain thinking it's very difficult to really establish informed consent in those people i i would say if, if the free market was truly left to be a free market without all the government strings and regulations and layers um tobacco companies would probably cease to exist long ago in a truly free market, right, that has um, appropriate safeguards, not safeguards intended to protect the industry, but intended to protect consumers, right? In that kind of free market environment, companies end up having to pay for the external costs that they create. And if the pharmaceutical tobacco companies could actually be held liable for the external costs they create, they wouldn't be selling cigarettes. That would be the solution. But, um, you know, restrictions uh, on all kinds of uh, tort reform, as it as it's uh, called and 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 uses a nice nice term, is really a way to protect companies and um, uh, protect companies and 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 avoid consumers from being able to get compensation. Yes, of course. Uh, so it's sold to consumers as if it's good for you to do tort reform. Um, there it is. Right, I know. But, you know, the, the the pharma model of things is it costs you a billion dollars to develop a successful new drug because of the hundreds that that are that fail before you get one that's successful. It takes a lot of investment in scientific research. And so they know that's a billion. Then it costs them two billion to market it because they corrupt the entire marketplace of academic doctors who are paid off for being lecturers on the drugs and and for uh, grants and so on, you know, to do research and and run clinical trials that they probably didn't need to be doing anyway. But it gets them, you know, kind of paid off. The journals and the advertising and the and the lay media and its advertising that addicts all of those things to to the pharma viewpoint. Um, so it is two billion dollars that it costs for the marketing aspect, and so and pharma knows that they're going to have to escrow five or six billion for the the lawsuits that they're going to get after the damages start coming out, and so they make thirty billion. They put uh, ten away 
from the cost and and the escrow. They make twenty billion in the net. They they put this out there until the the house of cards collapses, and and then they go on to the next one. And th- this has been the medical model of things, and and why there is all these giant lawsuits against Pfizer and other pharma because they knew full well that these things would fail and are damaging to enough people that eventually it would catch up to them and, and they were just trying to beat the curve. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, part of the solution to that problem is going through the model that I think I described earlier, which is by by having this captive uh, um, uh, situation where only the licensed products can be sold to treat a given ailment, um, you end up creating these monopolies, the government does, and then the government further restricts the ability of, you know, to advertise around drugs in various ways and so forth. And 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 it's ironic because those laws and regulations are supposed to be there, it's, you know, it's given the appearance that they're there to protect consumers, but it actually result in part, it's not all of it, in the model that you just described, which I agree with is very problematic. Uh, the only part I would say, the uh, only part I would, uh, uh, is the very beginning of what you said, which is how much money they put into to R&D and development. My understanding, and I'm no expert on this, but my understanding from some of the material I've read um, is that actually it's a pretty small percentage of the farmer's overall spend that most of it goes into to marketing and advertising, and um, which includes influencing doctors, journals, and so yeah. forth. Well, if they if they take a drug that failed in in Ebola and decide to use it for COVID, you know, then the marginal cost is is very little, right? Yeah. But it, they they had to develop it for for Ebola or something in the first place. So you know, it just depends on where and when that money was spent. But it's probably spent somewhere. Um, you know, it's interesting that that drug ads on TV are not for informing consumers. They're, in, they're for informing doctors that um, that doctors have to uh, be informed in order to tell the patients what the, the hazards are of the medication. So, you know, the, the fine print at the end of every drug ad on TV that nobody can keep up with because it's spoken so quickly and it's, and it's in such small print is to inform doctors so that pharma gets off the hook of having to inform patients. And then it becomes the doctor's responsibility to inform the patients. And the doctor actually takes responsibility if adverse events happen from prescribing the drug because the doctor was informed and the pharma gets off the hook. So all of those ads serve to addict the media company to the pharma and serves to get rid of the responsibility on pharma for informing the patients and puts it on the doctors. So it's not exactly like they're, you know, the benefit is threefold compared to just telling patients, here's this new drug you should be taking. Well, that's, um, you know, maybe stepping even further above all of that, um, all that issue you're describing, which is a a massive behemoth of a problem. Um, And I is what's incredible is that even though that problem has been documented by, you know, I'm thinking of Angel uh, Merkel, I believe she had Harvard and others and and yourself. we still have government that's going to ma- try to mandate the products sold by these very same companies on people in this society. And um, uh, despite the fact that we understand um, how conflicted they are, how much misconduct they engage in, part of which you just identified, 
Um, but nonetheless, the, the politicians believe that they can take away the civil individual rights of, of people, including parents, to make their own medical decisions. That uh, they, you know, they can force people to take effectively coerce them to take the products that these companies sell. So I, I really don't understand that. I wrote an essay about that, I think more than a year ago now, that once the product has no state interest, how is it that anybody could still mandate it? Aside from whether they're actually approved or not, which they weren't, they're, they're EUA and, and they're still EUA and so they're not approved. But how can you mandate something that there's no state interest? When the state itself comes out, the CDC comes out, you know, August 22nd of last year, or August 11th of last year, saying these things don't prevent transmission, you know, or trans the, the boosters are transient and wane, then what rationale is there for the mandate? There isn't. There's no state interest. So how can they still be mandating it? Well, you, you know, you know the old adage: uh, powers uh, seated are rarely returned. And uh, you know, this is not the first uh, biological vaccine that doesn't prevent infection transmission, but nonetheless has been mandated. And so, you, you know, uh, at least uh, my firm, on behalf of at least one of my clients, we've been we've been fighting against that long before COVID. Um, and and uh, but there isn't a public record. There has not been a public cognition around the, the ability not to do that. I mean, you know, um, if you look at the landscape of vaccines, for example, tetanus vaccine doesn't prevent infection transmission. Tetanus is not transmissible from person to person. But the pertussis vaccine, the cellular pertussis vaccine doesn't prevent infection transmission. You're going to have the same amount of carriage in your nasopharynx or the pertussis bacteria based on the FDA science on this topic. Um, but you're going to have less symptoms. It actually makes you more likely to spread pertussis. In fact, there's, it, it appears more circulating pertussis bacteria today than there was in the pre-vaccine era. I mean, I believe that's, and that's because the vaccine is preventing symptoms, but it's, it's, it's reducing symptoms potentially, but it's not preventing infection transmission. The new meningococcal 4 vaccine, the CDC itself says it's not really, it's con- not contributing to herd immunity. It's effectively, pre- I mean, and go down the list. Um, even the even the inactivated polio vaccine used in this country for over two decades on the CDC website explicitly says it doesn't prevent transmission because it creates systemic immunity when you inject it in the arm and your blood, right, IgG antibodies. Yep. It doesn't create IgA antibodies in your intestinal linings where polio, you know, multiplies and proliferates from fecal to oral contamination. So right, it's an enteral problem. Is, yeah, so the problem is decades of of, you know, when they slap the label of, of, uh, there we go. (laughs) Now I'm not staring at myself with that weird look. When you slap the label of vaccine on a product, all of a sudden it almost has become this um, idea that, that, oh, now we can take away your rights to say, no, don't take it. Sorry, can't go to school, can't go to work, can't engage in civil society. You don't have any more rights. And that's a problem. You shouldn't, you know, uh, and it's probably part of the lesson they learn. As many people, I mean, there's a lot of people who like to, you know, anyway, I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, we've got to another break point. So we're going to be back very shortly. Please stay tuned. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD, Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. 
Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Out loud. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with attorney Aaron Siri. So we were just discussing mandated vaccines that don't prevent transmission and how the government, which has no state interest in, in that, still gets away free with doing that because people are not saying, hey, this doesn't prevent transmission. You know, if I take it, it's my choice, not your choice, not the government's choice, my body, my choice, you know, and nobody's rising to that because nobody's paying attention because nobody's been critical thinking. And this goes on way longer than COVID. Well, look, as uh, um, as Rochelle Walensky, I think, said on CNN, something to the effect of at some, or, or one of those age shows, she's like, well, nobody told me it may not prevent transmission. I just think and it, it goes, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier, actually the very beginning of this discussion, which is cultural cognition. What do people, you know, just view that? And people are not going to spend the time to go look at, like what I just said about tetanus and 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 the IPV vaccine and, and pertussis. Are they going to go look at the sources? They're easy to find. We could pull them up right now. Literally, we could pull them up right now. But they're probably not going to do it. Um, but they just have a sense of things. And people are like, oh, vaccines, yeah, yeah. that just stops the virus. It stops and and that is um, uh, when that cognition changes, then this will change. And it just needs to require a little bit, just like the gay marriage thing. Once you get a little bit more social acceptance, like you don't even need people to go, yeah, I, I want gay marriage. You don't even need that. All you need to go, hey, I'm, I don't care. I don't care. So yeah. why is why is the government so invested in protecting pharma from these ideas? That's a great question, and I think the answer to that goes back to part of what you said earlier, which is vested financial interests. And and, and, the, and in, you know, in, in the world of consumer products in America, there's a way that, you know, there, there's a push and pull on consumer products, which typically happening between the company wanting to make money on the product, that's the, you know, the push, pushing it, and pulling it back is their ability to have losses. They can get sued, they can have, you know, uh, class actions against them, they can suffer financial consequences for issues. Um, but when it comes to uh, vaccine products, there's no push and pull. Since 1986, right. passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act in 1986, you can't sue pharmaceutical companies for uh, pretty much all their vaccine products and the, the injuries that they cause. In 1986, there were only three vaccines that were routinely given, DTP, MMR, and OPV. Only one of those is still around, MMR. Uh, but, but when they gave that immunity, they not only gave it for those three shots, but gave them for any vaccine that we're gonna, is going to be developed after that. They'll carry to basically a, 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 I don't want to be flip about it, but a gold rush um, into these products. They're products sold by these companies, and and they're and, and so they're out there pushing it. And here's the thing: when you have a product and you don't have to pay for any injuries, you you, you also want to have it as widely used. What's a great way to get it to to be used? Mandated. Right, Look at course. COVID vaccine without mandates. How many people are taking the bivalent booster? Almost none. What's that causing? They're not making as much money. I'm sure they, of course they want to mandate that. They would like everybody to have to get it. 
that's going to help them make billions of dollars. Well, they're not exactly being very swift about it. The next booster that's targeted to XBB.1.5 is already four generations of, of mutants behind. And it will, you know, now we we're at, even out of the XBB.1.16 and .2.3 and BG5. And who knows what's coming? They, they've got billions of dollars in marketing, as you pointed out earlier. Um, and they're going to, you know, send it. They're going to they're going to sell a message. The question is, will Americans buy it? I have been I was I was um, uh, I, I was um, really disappointed when I, there wasn't an uprising in America. When man, when when stay-at-home orders, when staying at home was mandated, March, April, May of two thousand. Not to say people, you want to stay at home, stay at home, stay at home. Recommend it. The government should encourage it. Recommend it. Put out books about why you should do it. Commercials, but mandating it. That that I could have. And when people, not only did they they clamored for the mandate, but you want to stay at home, stay at home. I was terribly disappointed. In no, you're going to kill respect, grandma if you don't stay home. Right. Well, the government says if you don't do what they say, you're going to always cause bad people to die. You're going to kill everybody. They say that in every one of my lawsuits when I sue the government. You can't grant the injunction, Your Honor, because everybody's going to die. That's like this. Yeah, that's what the government <laughs> always says. It, it's the same line. I can predict it no matter what. Mm -hmm. Your Honor, Your Honor, we, we, you know, we need an injunction preventing the government from, you know, uh, putting a road on this or putting a traffic light right here on this street. Everyone's going to die in the neighborhood. Everybody. It's the same line every time. But I was going to say in the same way I was so disappointed, I've actually been very heartened at how at, at how um, uh, how much the public appears to have actually learned a, a big portions of it, I do think, from the, what's happened over the last few years in how they are choosing uh, um, to conduct themselves and and and, and vote and 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 well in, in many respects and and uh, with their dollars with their feet with their ballots uh, more recently. So there's been a lot of COVID fatigue, I think, in part, and a lot of growing awareness of all of the misrepresentations that have been inflicted through the mass propaganda from the government. Now, what's interesting is at the beginning of the pandemic, you recall that five days after the emergency was declared that the control of the, the pandemic was management of the pandemic was moved to the National Security Council, made into military operation rather than public health operation. And that the vaccines were not vaccines, they're countermeasures. And this whole paradigm of military organization, the war on on COVID, you know, was was shifted in in maybe subliminal to the to the, most of the public's knowledge, but not being run as a public health campaign, except that the public health was operationalizing operationalizing what the military was telling them to do, and so we saw basically opposite public health technique measurements measures that and policies compared to what was known for respiratory viruses you know previous to covid lockdowns and you know and 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 distancing and all the, this stuff and closure of, of airports and 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 so on that never worked and were onerous to the societies that we knew we shouldn't do but happened anyway because there was other reasons other motivations of why the government 
was doing this, why the security apparatus of the government was doing this. And I've come to believe, I have little evidence, but I've come to believe that this was because the government, those people knew that they had created the virus themselves by supporting in massive dollar amounts the research, the gain-of-function research over the past 10 years, if not longer, that led to the escape of this virus from a lab. Whether that escape was you know, intentional or accidental, I won't address. But but the fact is that this was a designed virus. It's The evidence is proof of its actual engineering design. And so they were the ones who funded it, and they knew they had created this, this hydra, the, the, this monster, and they had to cover up their role in it. And so they did this, the, all of the, they were motivated to do the suppression aspects in the first year and then support their cronies in, in pharma to make their money out of it to, to basically not let the whole country go down with getting infected because they were actually afraid, irrationally afraid, just like the propaganda was saying. And, and and so they wanted the vaccines because they thought the vaccines would actually work. Also, the military thought they would work. And so that got that's the first two years uh, of things. Now, now there's a cover up of the cover up that that, you know, the, the, the military and the public health administrations are now saying, well, if, if it becomes clear to the public that we did all this and we're responsible for all this and all these bad policies and all the, the deaths and injuries and so on from the vaccines and from the lockdowns and, and everything else, then that, you know, that's really bad for us. So now we have to suppress what we did in trying to suppress what was from before. <laughs> I, 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 I think that you know, the, the Occam's razor, the most parsimonious explanation is that the virus did escape from a lab. That makes the most sense to me. There's no, my understanding, there's no bats within 700 miles of Wuhan. <laughs> it's the nearest bat cave. Um, there's not good evidence that came out of the wet market and you had a lab that was specifically designed to test bat viruses. Well, and it's, it's worse. But bats in, you know, tons of bats in cages with, you know, so... Please, but it's worse because the there's a 19 nucleotide long sequence in the COVID virus mm-hmm. that, that does not exist in any other organism in nature of the hundred thousand organisms that are in catalog genetic catalogs in the uh, the NIH databases only exists in two places one in COVID 19 and the other in a Moderna patent from 2017 and mm-hmm. the and it's so long a 19, 19 long sequence is tantamount to what are called primers and probes in genetics. They identify unique places in a gene so that when you want to paste something into a gene or you want to identify where something's happening in a gene, you match it up to your, you construct the sequence 19 or 20 or 21 long, and then you see where it sticks. And that tells you whether you're in the right place or not. So 19 is long enough to do that uniquely. And that means that if that's unique then, and this doesn't appear anywhere else, and this is a unique marker, of the Moderna patent in the virus itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, you know, Dr. Fauci's colleagues, you know, very early on published a paper and, you know, major publication that told us that's conspiracy theory. This thing came from, <laughs> this thing did not come from a lab. That's that. They, but in fact, I distinctly remember when that paper came out, I was like, wow, that, that is, ri-. that seems so defensive. Um, and it, 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 
you duck protest too much, right? Right. Um, so yes, uh, that. But you know, even without fully understanding all that, because obviously, I think that for um, for most folks out there, night, you know, that's that's see, that's um, just uh, um, it's too technical. Most folks intuitively got. Wait a second! You're testing labs down the street. <laughs> bat, bat viruses right there in that lab, right. and that first started. I think most people, most people got it. The John Stewart segment I thought on that with, uh, um, yeah, I thought was really good. But I want, I do going back to your the military component of this. The one thing I, I you know, I, I will, um, uh, you know, I, I give you my view on a piece of that. Anyway, is this. The emergency youth authorization, at least regarding the vaccine, okay, with regards to the vaccine, the EUA had to be granted by the FDA. That is, you know, the statutory ability to do that had to be done by the FDA. And by, you know, essentially it was Dr. Marks, Peter, Dr. Peter Marks. Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, we FOIA the FDA a lot and we get a lot of internal communications. And, um, you know, my opinion, from reading lots and lots of internal communications, Dr. Peter Marks, when you think about how this vaccine get authorized, how to get licensed, you want to know how? That guy, Dr. Peter Marks. And um, and I'm not, he does not strike me, nor does anything I've read internally lead me to conclude that he was a puppet on the string of the of the military. The military, to be sure, had an involvement with the uh, with warp speed, the entire project that was set up. Um, you know, the uh, the gen- army general was tasked with procurement and distribution of, of the COVID vaccine. That's why, for example, the right the, the, the initial contracts with Pfizer to purchase uh, Pfizer COVID vaccine was with the United States Army. It's an Army contract. And it was a general of the Army that was responsible for the whole rollout. So there obviously was military involvement. But, but I, wouldn't let Dr. I wouldn't let Dr. Marks off the hook that quick. Um, I think he he, event, did he go to event 201? I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I mean, uh, um, now obviously also the secretary of HHS, um, it, it, that's the, that he's the one who had to declare prep act immunity, which you call the countermeasure that took the, the vaccine. Um, well, it, it, it made the vaccine and all the drugs and, and remdesivir and all the protocols and it made them all countermeasures. There were, Anything that was meant to address COVID nineteen was would, would you know would fall effectively into the definition of countermeasures under the Prep Act, and would be granted that immunity. And that's separate, obviously, than than the White House's declaration of an emergency. There were all three separate statutory provisions, and I know, and only one of them got ended. I know, I understand. Yeah, only right, only one got ended. Um, you know, and and my other experience with agencies is that you know they're all very territorial. Right, the FDA doesn't want the army telling them what to do. The army doesn't want to tell FDA telling them what to do. They all have their own fiefdoms, their own budgets, their own little yeah. worlds. Um, so you know, I, I wouldn't be so quick to let um, the, the FDA off and the CDC off the hook for for their incredible, incredible and gross misconduct during the during the last three years. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. I've been writing almost daily about the the fake studies coming out of CDC. Every one of them with multiple authors. <laughs> they're, they're called. It's called a newsletter. 
The MMWR, the, the non-peer-reviewed, peer-reviewed paper. That's right, I know, which I used to respect when I was in med school, you know, and how far it's fallen. Um, using the wrong scientific methods in the paper and just stating it in the paper and, and having all these authors who can't tell that that it, the paper is fatally flawed because they used the wrong analysis and the wrong parameters for vaccine efficacy. They think they're but, right. They don't know. The CDC is transparent about the MMWR, right? And, and you know, and, and that's, uh, like you said, I... I mean, your audience might all know what that is, but it's basically the, you know, the CDC's equivalent of a, what they view as a journal and the public, the science community views as a journal. But like you said, it's not peer reviewed. It goes through an internal clearance process. And the CDC is not, they don't hide the ball on this, right? That that clearance process assures by the time the article, if it makes it through, has to align with CDC policy. Well, CDC policy is the vaccine safe and effective and everybody should get it. Well, there you go. Right. Oh, I That's know. it. You don't need to know more than that to know you can't trust anything out of the MMWR because even if they get 100 studies, 99 show it's not safe, one shows it's safe. The one's making it out, the other 99 are not. That's right. That's exactly the CDC, the cherry-picking CDC. I, I understand that. Uh, you know, this is... That's putting aside the methodology in the one study that makes it out. And the, yeah. other, the reason it shows a different result because of methodology, a Kentucky study on natural immunity is like... Oh, that's what I was thinking. That's right. That's one of the best. That's one of the best. I know. Uh, it, it really, I just don't know how those scientists can can say these things with a straight face and mm. not feel professional embarrassment for all of that. I'll give you my, I think it's because they genuinely think they're saving the world. I'm, every Rare is the person that goes, I'm a bad person. I'm bad. I'm evil. Most people think they're good and, and they always have a way to justify what they do. I, I think that most folks at the CDC, the FDA, even if they understand just to whatever degree they do that this drug or this vaccine or this product medical device or has these this level of risk and will hurt or injure or kill some people they believe that on balance they're saving more lives than they're hurting and that's how they sleep at night to your point so okay. even but they've never evaluated the costs they only evaluate what they think are the benefits such are the uh uh you know to, uh well that's what I call vaccine science, but yes. Well, this is amazing. So unfortunately, we're actually out of time for today. I'd really love to continue this for another hour, but we'll have to do that another time. I hope everybody, our listeners, have enjoyed the discussion. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. Aaron, thank you so much. This has been a really great discussion. Thanks, everybody, for listening and come back again next week. 